Hey everyone, my name is Adam and welcome to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. At the end of today's episode, please take a minute and download our free Chestnut Ridge app. It has all our recent message content and more. You can also head to theridge.church to get information on service times and get info on everything going on here at the Ridge. We hope this podcast will encourage and inspire you as you continue to grow in your relationship with God and others. Uh, It's good to be back with you after being gone the last uh, few weekends. Last weekend, I was uh, officiating a wedding out of state, and then the two weekends before, I was on vacation with my family in Banff, Canada, and our whole family this year again was able to go, and so I was thrilled about that. Uh, It was not easy getting there, I have to admit. Banff is located almost as far west as the state of Washington. We were supposed to fly out of Dulles uh, to Toronto and Toronto to Calgary and then to Banff, and um, the D.C. portion was canceled. It meant we had to drive up to Toronto. Uh, And we arrived at the border there 30 minutes after the border between Canada, Canada and the U.S. was open for the first time to American tourists in 17 months. And it felt like it took 17 months to get across the border, too. But finally, we were able to fly to Calgary. But I wanted to show you a couple pictures. I'm not the kind of guy that um, brings a bunch of pictures to some reunion and then says, look at this and look at this. But I did want to show you some of the pictures because Banff is regarded by some as, as the most beautiful place on the planet. It's in everybody's short list. It's absolutely gorgeous. But here's one of the lakes located in this region. It's called Lake Louise. It was absolutely gorgeous, a turquoise color lake. Here's a picture of Lake Moraine. And let me show you another picture of Lake Moraine. Uh, None of these pictures have been photoshopped. These came from my phone. It's just how beautiful it was. And they didn't even capture the beauty of it at the time. And so while we were there, though, I I did, um, I was able to record a helicopter rescue operation that took place with my phone. And this kind of relates to my subject this morning, this idea of a rescue operation, because I think that's what the church is about at least partially. What we're about is a rescue operation. But I want to show you, uh, uh, there was a helicopter rescue operation. Apparently, someone needed to be life-flighted, and I, I was able to capture it with my phone. So I want to show you this. Doesn't that look fun? (laughs) As Josh mentioned, we're beginning a new series today called Relevant, and we are raising the question, is the church really still relevant in the world today, especially as it's turning away from God and and turning away from God's ways, or at least I believe it is? Does the church really have something to offer? And we're convinced the answer is yes, it does. And so we want to talk about this the next few weeks. The first week of the series, I want to talk about the power of the gospel to save. The difference that this message, see, the church has been entrusted with a message that is so powerful, so amazing, it's able to transform a person's life, and I'll talk about that in a minute, but we also want to talk about the importance of the spiritual family that we're a part of when we put our faith in Christ. God is our Father. We become brothers and sisters in Christ. There are all kinds of implications related to that. 
but especially if your family upbringing wasn't a positive experience, the church has the potential to be a new family for you. And then we want to talk about the difference that the church can make outside our walls to be a light in this world and make a difference in this world as we serve the world just like Jesus did. And then we want to talk about the influence we can have on a godless culture. The question needs to be raised, should the church speak to the morality of a society? And I think the church has made mistakes in this regard, but should we, should we speak into what's happening in terms of the morals of a society or not? We want to address that question. And then we're going to talk about the subject of um, the church today with COVID-19. COVID-19 did not catch God by surprise. And we here at Chestnut Ridge are convinced that God's doing some really unique things in our day and age, and so we want to talk about that one of the weeks of the series. But today we want to talk about the power of this message, this gospel message to save people or rescue people, just like that helicopter rescuer was engaged in rescuing someone, we believe that we are to be engaged in rescuing people. And I have a verse that illustrates that in just a minute. But the message we have is incredibly powerful. And I've often thought this. It's just hard to imagine for me that a a message can be so powerful that those who believe it receive eternal life. That it can literally create an eternal life in a person who believes. But that's exactly what Paul said in Romans 1.16. He said, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is God's power for salvation. It is God's power to rescue everyone who believes. The message itself is powerful. Now, the word gospel means good news. That's simply what it means. It was, it was a word used in Bible times. It wasn't even of religious significance in Bible times. It just meant the announcement of good news. But the way Paul is using it here, when it says the gospel is the power to save, he's talking about a particular message of good news, and the message is this, that though we are separated from God because of sin, God found a way to restore the relationship through his son Jesus. The sinless son of God took upon himself the sin of the world so that those who put their trust in the risen Lord Jesus Christ receive the gift of eternal life. That's the good news that when that happens, we are born anew. But make no mistake about it, what we're really talking about here is indeed a rescue effort. Colossians 1, 13 and 14, this is what Paul had to say about it. He said, he, referring to the Father, has rescued us from the domain of darkness. He's rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins in him. I've mentioned before that the word redemption means to pay the price to release somebody or something. It's to pay the price or a ransom to secure the release of a person or a thing. And this verse is saying that we have been redeemed or a price was paid that would transfer us from this kingdom of darkness. Now, I don't think most people realize that's where they are. But before someone becomes a Christian, they're firmly entrenched in what's called the kingdom of darkness, and then they're redeemed. Jesus paid the ultimate price in order to buy our freedom so that we could be set free from the penalty of our sin. And when we put our faith in Christ, we're transferred 
Now, the main thing I hope we walk away here today with is this, that the church has a message that can change the world one life at a time. Because this whole series is asking the question, is the church relevant? And I'm starting with this idea, yes, because we have a message. That when a person responds to this message, a life is changed one person at a time, which at the ground level begins to change everything. As lives are changed, a town could be changed, a society can be changed, a, a country can be changed, all because of this thing called the gospel. There are three things, though, or three changes that take place the moment a person puts their faith in Christ. At least three that Paul refers to in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 21. And so that's where I want to spend our time this morning. I mean, we are changed in more ways than three. I'll mention some in a minute. But I want to focus on three ways that this gospel message that's been entrusted to the church changes lives. Let me read the section from which I get these three changes. It's 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 21. Let's begin in verse 14. We read, for Christ's love compels us. Since we have reached this conclusion, if one died for all, then all died. Now, I'll explain that in a minute. You know, you're wondering, what sense have we all died? But if one died for all, then we all died. And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone knows Christ, is securely tucked inside of Christ in a relationship with him, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away, and look, new things have come. Everything or all of this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses or sins against them. And he's committed the message of reconciliation to us, to the church. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, certain that God is appealing through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Get right with God. That's the message because he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Let's look at three significant changes that take place when we put our faith in the risen Lord Jesus Christ to be our Savior. First of all, we are recreated. We're recreated. We become someone new. Now, if you wanted to learn about creation, I would suggest you go to Genesis chapters 1 and 2 because the entire creation story from a biblical perspective, is recorded in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And if you read that and then you kept reading, you might conclude that God is done creating. You might conclude that all of creation took place in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. But in the verses we just read, we come to find out that God is recreating every time someone puts their faith in Christ, a new Creation takes place, something brand new. Isn't that what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 17? He said, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away, and look, new things have come. It's a brand new thing. In the Greek language, there are a couple different Greek words that are translated new in our English Bibles. So there are different Greek words, but in our English Bible, they're translated new. 
One of those Greek words refers to new in the sense of time. You know, that something is, is new. You might talk about, I got a brand new car. I got a new job. You know, you'd assume the person just started. It's new in terms of time. And that's how the word is sometimes used in the Bible, but sometimes the word new is a different Greek word, and it means new in terms of quality, in terms of essence. And it's used in this second sense in the verse we just read when it said you're a new creation, the old has come, the new is here. They were new not in terms of time, of course, you're the same person you were before, but you are new in terms of your essence. Something changes dramatically when a person becomes a Christian. Dr. Jameson puts it this way, new in the Greek, and he's referring to that verse, new in the Greek implies a new nature quite different from anything previously existing. Not merely recent, which is expressed by a different Greek word. He's saying the Greek word here is not the one that means recent. It means new in terms of quality or essence. When a person becomes a Christian, a, a brand new creation takes place. We've created new. Now, what happens? I mean, what changes here? What, what makes this a new creation? Well, it's the introduction of the Spirit of Jesus Christ who comes to live within us and the moment he enters us, he imparts within us a thing called eternal life. God, Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus Christ actually invades our life, our person. And we're given this thing called eternal life, this gift of eternal life at that moment. And now the Spirit of Christ is with you forever and he begins to change you from the inside out. Now there's a mystery about how that all works. I don't understand it all. All I know is that if you're a Christian, you're not alone anymore, and you've got somebody within you that's changing you, and it starts immediately the moment you believe. A transformation takes place, a brand new creation. And it's through the Word of God, this thing called the gospel. You see, God spoke everything into existence in creation. Remember, he said, let there be light, and there was light. In the case of a new creation, a person, it's the gospel message, let there be life. I've seen this change in people's lives over the years. I've watched people change so dramatically. It's like unbelievable. Like people say, what on earth happened to you? You're not the same person you were before. No, you're not. Now, it's not always a dramatic change. I mean, you don't always see it. It is always dramatic. You just don't always see it. You know, some of the stories you hear, I, I was this and that, and I, I was, you know, in, in prison, and, and all this happened, and then I found Christ, and my life changed, and, and we see this big change. You don't always see the change. I became a Christian, I believe, when I was five years old. I stopped robbing banks. <laughs> Here is at five, and what would I do? You know, I didn't see, I did have a little temper. I will, I will say this, that at five years of age, I had a little bit of a temper, and maybe that changed dramatically, I don't remember, but, you know, sometimes a change doesn't appear dramatic, but you are somebody brand new. Somebody that is now equipped to spend an eternity with God. Something changes. Now, this is what Jesus was referring to when he was talking to a religious leader of his day, a man named Nicodemus, Nicodemus in his day was viewed as one of the, the, the most devout teachers of Israel. Everybody knew who he was. 
And Jesus looked squarely at him and he said, unless you're born again, you'll never see the kingdom of heaven. Unless you're born anew, you can translate it that way, or born from on high, unless you're born again, you will never see the kingdom of heaven. Something has to change about you. And it's a change that only God brings about. And of course, it makes some sense. Nicodemus struggled with this. He said, well, how do I get reborn? And Jesus put it this way. Well, flesh gives birth to flesh. The spirit gives birth to spirit. And what we're talking about is the spirit, a spiritual family, a spiritual kingdom. Do you want to be part of that? Because everyone that's alive was born physically, so we understand how that works. You got a physical life. Jesus said to Nicodemus, it's the same thing spiritually. You have to experience a spiritual rebirth. And Nicodemus asked the question, well, how does that happen? What do I need to do? How does it work? And Jesus spoke those famous words in John 3, 16. He said, well, God so loved the world, he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him, whoever puts their trust in him will not perish but have eternal life, spiritual life born again, born anew, and life has changed. And this is the change that God wants to produce in every person's life. The gospel writer John talked about this change. He was referring to Jesus in John 1, 10 through 13, when he said he, again referring to Jesus, was in the world, and the world was created through him. Let me stop for a moment, but Jesus was the, kind of the architect of creation, This says that Jesus was the one who was out there doing the creating. All of, of course, the Trinity was involved, but Jesus seemed to be the main architect of creation. He was in the world, and the world was created through him. Why it matters is that we're talking here about a new creation being a person. And the same thing happens with a person when they encounter Christ. They're recreated. But it goes on to say here, the world didn't recognize him. Verse 11, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did. To all who did receive him, and this includes everyone in this room, if you receive him, he gives you the right, the privilege, the power to become children of God to those who believe, who are born, and here's the point, not of blood or of the will of flesh or the will of a person, no, born of God. This is something God does. It's, it's not about, Christian, being a Christian is not about pulling yourself up by the bootstraps and trying to change. It's about God changing you the moment you put your faith in Christ. We are recreated. And I mentioned a lot of things happen the moment we believe. Let me list some of them. These are found, by the way, on the Version app. I have them all listed there. You can download the Version and then go to Chester Ridge Church. They're all listed there for this week. What happens when you believe? A bunch of things change. One, you're adopted into God's family. You become a permanent member of his family. Second, you're transferred into Christ's spiritual kingdom. You receive the gift of eternal life. We've talked about that. We're placed into a spiritual family called the church. Suddenly, supernaturally, the Spirit of God makes all of us brothers and sisters. We are suddenly family. We're seated with the Holy, or sealed with the Holy Spirit. This This means uh, um, it's like an ancient seal of ownership. It's also the seal of protection. Holy Spirit has you marked. He's marked you to say this, this is one of God's for all eternity. We're forgiven of our sins, past, present, and future. We're given one or more spiritual gifts or abilities. 
We're given a constant companion to always help us and be with us. And we're able to experience spiritually abundant life, and the list goes on and on. And so through the gospel message with which the church has been entrusted, the world can be changed one life at a time. It starts with this recreation. But a second change that takes place is that we're reconciled to God. We are reconciled to God. One of the main purposes of the church is to reintroduce people to their creator. And this is something that needs to happen. Let's read verses 18 and 19 again. Where Paul said, everything is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us, the church, the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses or sins against them, and he's committed the message of reconciliation to us, to the church. Now, earlier this year, I talked about what the word reconciled means, February. The Harper's Bible Dictionary defines it this way. Reconciliation is a term indicating the changed relationship for the better between persons or groups who formerly were at enmity or hostility with each other. Humanity stands in need of reconciliation. A scholar by the name of Carnes in the Dictionary of Theological Terms puts it this way. Reconciliation is the removal of the enmity or the hostility between God and the sinner and the establishment of a new relationship of peace and friendship between them, and it's on the ground of Christ's payment. Now, I think some people might struggle with this idea, but before, before a person puts his or her faith in Christ, we're regarded in the New Testament as being enemies of God. Now, if you ask the average person out there, are you an enemy of God? They say, of course not. I'm not an enemy of God, but it's our sin that clings to us like a disease that has come between us and a holy God. There's enmity there. In the Old Testament, it's put this way. All of us are like sheep who've gone astray. Every one of us has turned to his own way. Every one of us has rebelled against God. Everyone in this room has said no to God on occasion. Every one of us has done things that we knew God wouldn't want. That's the life we, we've been born with. And if you doubt whether we're enemies of God, write down the reference Romans 5.10. It talks about the fact we were enemies. And it's because, again, our sin kind of clings to us like a disease. That's how I, I picture it. You know, during this pandemic, uh, we've gotten away from hugging a little bit. And, and I know some, this has just about killed them. Some of you are huggers, you know. I, I'm not a big hugger, but I'm fine with the hugs. I, you know, I don't... I don't mind the hugs, but with, the, with this pandemic, it's like, ah, you, you, you know, you might have COVID. When I think of it in terms of sin in a person's life, and we sin, by the way, constantly in word, thought, and deed, our sin is, it clings to us more like the disease of leprosy is how I view it. If I came here and my body was covered le with leprosy and I said, hey, I want to hug you, come here. Would any of you do it? Would any of you hug me? You say, no, you've got this thing. You know, you get rid of that thing and, and we can hug. Our sin has come between us and God. That is clear throughout the pages of the Bible. God is holy, we are not. There's this big gap 
bigger than the Grand Canyon that comes between people and their creator, and we can't, we can't fix the problem, but what if our sin could be removed from us, the disease? What if it could be just taken away? And some people don't know this, by the way, that it's possible to actually have a relationship with the creator, the one you read about in the Bible. I read these stories about how David knew God and Abraham and other people in the Bible, heroes of the faith, they had a relationship with God. All of us can have this relationship with God. It's what God wants. But our sin is in the way. How do we get rid of it? Well, there's nothing we can do. You can't clean yourself up enough. You can't stop sinning even if you wanted to. No, we, we're stuck. This is why Jesus came into the world. This is why the verses we just read said we're redeemed through the blood of Christ because he was without sin. He did nothing wrong, but he was willing to take upon himself our sin. It's like I'll take your sin and yours and I'll take yours. And he was executed for everything you and I have done wrong on the cross. He died for us and was buried. Of course, three days later, he rose again from the dead. It proved that the payment he had made on our behalf was accepted by God. And we have the promise throughout the pages of the Bible that if we put our trust in Jesus, that our sin is removed and our relationship with our Creator is restored, that he paid the price for us. Really what happened is it's like he became a sinner and we became righteous. And that's exactly what Paul said in the last verse of this section here. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, He, referring to God the Father, made the one who did not know sin, did not experience sin himself, to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He became like he was a sinner. God treated him as a sinner. That's why on the cross, the Father turned away. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where have you gone? A holy God turned away from his own son the moment he took upon himself the sin of the world. But if Jesus has your sin, it's gone. And reconciliation is now possible when we put our faith in Christ. But there's a third change that takes place that makes a big difference. In addition to being recreated and being reconciled to God, the third change is that we are repurposed. We are given a purpose in life. Now, there are all things that all of us agree that people need to live. You need air. You need water. Food would be nice. Got to have food. Shelter, clothing are important. Psychologists will tell you, actually, that you need love. That they've done studies that have indicated that if an animal or a person doesn't have love, they die. That we need love. But I want to suggest that we need something else. We need purpose for living. A reason to live. And when we become Christians, when we put our faith in Christ, we're given a purpose. And what is the purpose? What is the Christian's purpose? Well, it's found in verses 14 and 15. For Christ's love compels us since we have reached this conclusion. If one died for all, then all died. Again, I'll explain this in a second. And he died for all so that, and here's the point, those who live should no longer live for themselves but for the one who died for them and was raised. And what Paul is saying here is that Christ died for us and if we put our faith in Christ, we have died too. 
To what have we died? Well, we've died to ourselves so that we might live for Christ. We've died to what we would normally give our lives to so that now we can serve Him. As it says here, He died for all so that those who live as Christians should no longer live for themselves but for the one who died for them. That's our purpose in, in living is to live for Jesus. And that purpose is a purpose that gives purpose in life. I look at the world today and I think people are lacking purpose. And I think there's a hopelessness out there. I'm almost 62 and I learned years ago that nothing in this world really satisfies fully except Christ. Nothing really satisfies. I mean, this is what Paul said. He said, for me to live is Christ. Living means Jesus. It's, it's a purpose for living. I love a lot of the things of this world, but, but they don't ultimately satisfy. For example, I, I really like being out in nature, and so I enjoyed the time I had in Banff. It was a worship experience for me. I'm out there seeing all that God had created, but even when I was there, I remember thinking, if life were only about this beauty, it wouldn't be enough. I was so grateful that I knew the one who created it all, that I could even enjoy it all with him, that, that, that Jesus is the one that makes the difference. My relationship with my God makes all the difference in the world. It allows me to enjoy all this in a different way. People give themselves to all kinds of purposes in life. Maybe it's about a career or earning money. I remember when I first moved here, I, I worked at a bank for a couple of years until I was able to go full-time with the church, and I was a supervisor of a drive-up bank facility at the main branch for one of the bigger banks in town, and I liked the job. I enjoyed the job. I, I, I enjoyed, and I hate to put it this way, but I loved all the money. It wasn't mine. I get it. But it was just so fun. Someone would come in with like this pile of money, and I just loved counting it, you know, and, at the end of the day, I'd count it again, you know, make sure it all added up, and mine usually was really pretty good, and I just enjoyed doing it, and I actually could have stayed at the bank. I would have enjoyed that. The president of the bank knew that I, wanted, I was here to start a church, but he kept saying, hey, but if you want to stay here, we've got a job for you. I would have enjoyed that, but even when I worked at the bank, and even through what I do now as a pastor... It was, it, it's really about my relationship with Christ. I remember thinking as I worked there, you know, if I didn't have Jesus, this just wouldn't do it. Even as being a pastor, if it, it weren't for Jesus, I wouldn't do it just for the job's sake, for a career. Purpose is not found in fame. It's not found in fortune. It's not found in stuff. People that have all these things will tell you that when they finally get it all and they say, I thought by now I'd be happy and, and, and they have everything they'd ever want and they say, it, it doesn't satisfy. None of it was made to satisfy. Nothing of this world. But Jesus satisfies. And people need to hear about this because in our world today, I'm telling you, young people today are watching the news and they're saying, our world is dying. Everything bad is happening where is it all? And they don't feel, it's hopeless. It feels hopeless. Young people are taking their lives because they don't see the hope in it. And Jesus is the answer. Because regardless of what's happening, I have Jesus. If I have Jesus, I'm okay. If I lose everything, but if I have Jesus, and this is what our life should be about. The writer of Hebrews put it this way, your life should be free from the love of money. 
Be satisfied with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. If that's what he says, if you have him, you have everything. But as a church, we have another purpose. As Christians, we have another purpose. And it brings us full circle to what I started with here. We have a purpose of helping to reconcile the world to Christ. That's one of our main purposes. Again, reading 2 Corinthians 5, 18 to 21, everything's from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And then it says he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself through Jesus. He's restoring things, not counting their sins against them. And he's committed, entrusted the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ, and we're certain God is appealing through us. When we share Christ with other people, you can know for certain God is speaking through you. God is making an appeal to that person. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That's our message. Please get right with God. Please, whatever you do, get right with God. And then the message of reconciliation is right here. Here's the message. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Put your faith in that one, Jesus. Being a, an ambassador for Christ is kind of a big deal. A scholar by the name of M.J. Harris observes this about what it means to be an ambassador. By the way, that's a job I think would be fun too. Representing somebody important. I'm an ambassador. It just feels so important. And we re represent the creator. But he said, to be an ambassador in the ancient world, he's talking about Greek, Roman, and Jewish ancient world, as in modern times involved three things, commissioning for a special assignment, representing the sender, which in this case is Jesus, we're representing Jesus, and exercising the authority of the sender. We have the authority of Christ. Of course, you remember he said this, all authority's been given to me, go and make disciples. We have the authority of Christ. The envoy represented the messenger and acted on his behalf and in his place, thus embodying his authority. To disregard or insult the envoy was to disregard or insult the sender. When people attack us for this message, they're really attacking the one who sent us. Sent us. So what do we do with this? Well, let me summarize and then give an application here, really two. One is that, again, we have a message that can change lives, one life at a time. It's how we, I think, change the world the best way. And, and when people respond to this message, they're recreated, they're reconciled, they're repurposed in their life. It's one of the best ways we could serve people to introduce them to Christ. And this is why at Chestnut Ridge, we talk a lot around here about invest and invite. Just one practical application. We encourage you to invest in other people, relationships, especially people from God. Uh, or far from God. To get to know people, to love people well, and then invite. As you have opportunities, as God opens doors, you invite them either to place their trust in Christ, which is a wonderful privilege to lead someone to put their trust in Christ, or you can invite them to the church where they'll hear the good news about Christ. But this is something we're to be about, and it's a, it's a wonderful privilege. An application for those of you that maybe don't know where you stand would be this, that some of you maybe don't know if you've ever been reconciled to God, and so my encouragement to you is put your trust in Christ to be your Savior today. 
because we can't fix our sin problem. And if you realize that you've got a, a problem it's called sin, and you believe what I'm saying here today, that God sent his son to be your savior, that he paid the price for you, rose from the dead, we are given the promise that if we'll put our trust in him, God will change us. He'll give us eternal life. And most people do this through a simple prayer. It's, dear God, I know I've sinned. I know I need a savior, and today I, I receive Jesus. Today I put my trust in him to be my savior, the provision you made for me. I believe he died and rose again. I receive him as my savior. So receive me as your child. And God promised to do this, promises to do this. Of course, all this is about one main idea, and that is that God loves us. God gave us this thing called the gospel because he loves us so much. He wants a relationship with us. And as this song we're going to sing in a moment says, he wants to be closer than a brother. He wants to be our strength. He wants to be our portion. He wants to be with us in the fire and in the storm. He's a God that wants a relationship, a relationship with us. I've got a friend closer than a brother. No judgment, oh, how he loves me. I've got a friend, he is my strength, and he is my portion. With me in the valley, with me in the fire, and with me in the storm.
Dear God, we are just amazed that you loved us so much that we should be called children of God, and that's what we are because of your love for us. Who could have imagined that the creator of the heavens and the earth would send his son to die so that we could enjoy an eternity with you, but that's exactly what you did in sending your son Jesus for us. And so we do embrace him, we receive him as our savior and are so grateful that you are a friend and a father, one who stays close to us, one to whom we can continually turn. You are our hope for us to live is Christ. We thank you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. If you'd like to hear more messages now, you can check out our past series at theridge.church slash messages or download the free Ridge app. Thanks again for listening and we will see you next time.